Hello, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Welcome to She Said, She Said. Today we're here at the U.S. Capitol in the Cannon House office building, and we're delighted to welcome Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. Actually, she's welcoming us to her office. Um, Elise is the youngest woman ever elected to Congress from either political party. She represents New York's 21st congressional district and is now serving in her second term. She has many legislative accomplishments already under her belt and many of those with bipartisan support from her colleagues. She also serves on the House Armed Services Committee, the House Education and Workforce Committee, and the House Intelligence Committee, and she's actively working to recruit other women, other GOP women, to run for Congress. Elise, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited about this new project, She Said, She Said. So it's a real privilege for me to be one of your first interviews. Thank you. Well, it's a privilege to be here with you. We've known each other a long time. Elise and I were talking before we got started. Uh, when I went into labor with our son, who's now 10, she was the call I made to the White House. She was working with my husband in the Bush administration, and Elise was the person who took the call. Yes, and I knew how important that call was. I will never forget telling your husband, Joel, you need to drop everything and go to the hospital. Or go home and pick up Laura, I think was what happened. <laughs> we go way, way back. We go way back. So, Elise, since that time, you've had many amazing accomplishments. Um, the most significant, perhaps, is the fact that you broke ground in becoming the youngest uh, woman ever elected from either party to Congress. And as a result, you earned a ton of media attention and exposure, a lot more than what your average freshman member would have. Did that present added challenges or was it helpful to you? Like what, how, how did that impact your start? So I think it provided a unique opportunity and there were also challenges uh, that came as a result of that. Let me take a step back. When I decided to run for office, I did not know I would be the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. Uh, that was something that I discovered after, after the media uh, covered my primary win, and um, my race was a fairly high-profile race. I represent a swing district, and the media started covering this fact. Um, and what was really interesting to me and very humbling to me was young women, uh, parents started bringing their young daughters to various campaign events. And these were not just Republican uh, families, but independent families, Democratic families who wanted to show their daughters role models that they could that they could be someday, whether it was running for office, you know, uh, running a company or becoming an astronaut, whatever the case may be. That was incredibly humbling. and. It taught me that I have uh, somewhat of an outsized voice as a member of Congress, uh, as the youngest woman ever elected, uh, that I serve as a role model for other women members. But I also knew that when I started this job, I wanted to earn the respect from my colleagues. And um, there's a saying on Capitol Hill, you're either a workhorse or a show horse. Uh, some members really focus on the media and not necessarily their legislative victories or legislative results for their district. Um, I wanted to earn the respect of my constituents and of my colleagues that I was a workhorse and that I focus on the policy issues, that I'm a substantive member who's engaged on my committees, and that I deliver results for the constituents that I represent. So while I think it's given the district an opportunity to get attention 
in the national sense on issues that are important to them. It also had challenges for me in the sense that uh, my office is a bit under the microscope uh, from the media and from my colleagues, but I have really felt welcomed by all my colleagues in Congress in the Republican and Democratic side. So the average age of a member of Congress is 58, and the vast majority, as you and I have talked about many times, uh, are, they're, they're men. Um, they have kids that are older than you are, certainly your age, if not a bit older. Has that impacted the way in which they work with you? I think it has. Um, I, again, have felt very welcomed by my colleagues, and I think many of the my fellow members of Congress, despite the fact that they're a generation older than me, they see their kids in me. They see how hard their children are working in whatever profession uh, their kids are involved in, and they want to see the next generation succeed. So regardless of your political party, I, I do think uh, something that bridges the divide between Democrats and Republicans, people want to see the next generation step up and solve issues that are seemingly intractable right now. Uh, we have a number of issues that my generation is going to have to face, whether it's modernizing government, whether it's fixing programs that are on the path towards bankruptcy. Um, and I think most members of Congress, despite the fact that they're 58 years old, they want to see the next generation step up. Uh, so I've been very welcomed on the policy side. One of the funny challenges uh, that I've faced is sort of the generational differences. There's a bit of a learning curve using technology for some of my colleagues. Uh, one funny story, the first week when I started uh, this job, you go through an orientation process and uh, they give each member of Congress a beeper, a, like a, an old school pager, which I've never had, but you know, maybe the older members rely on that. So that, to me, really highlighted the technological disparity. Uh, some of them are still just learning how to use social networks. Some are pretty savvy at this point, but there is somewhat of a divide. Do you find yourself having the opportunity to, to coach them in ways that may have surprised you? I mean, you're a millennial. You are very adept at social media. You use it very effectively to tell the story of what you're accomplishing on behalf of your constituents. Do you find that sort of reverse mentorship in effect? I, I do find it somewhat uh, of an opportunity to do reverse mentorship, um, mentoring, I guess, uh, teaching them how to use Instagram, teaching them that Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are very different tools. You don't use the same content for each social media platform. Um, really trying to encourage them to show their personal side so that they're presenting not just their uh, official day-to-day -day duties, but that they're uh, breaking down the barriers of accessibility as to you know what they do with their family, what they do for fun in their districts. Because I think um, there is a disconnect, and we've seen this in the outcomes of previous elections. People feel disconnected from what's happening in Washington. Bridging those divides and breaking down those barriers, I think, uh, is important. And you can use technology to do that. Why did you decide to run? What, what led you to this point? Had you always uh, aspired to run for elected office? I did not always aspire to run for elected office. And um, when I was in college, I knew that I wanted to do something related to public policy. Um, I was very, very honored and privileged to serve under President George W. Bush, working with your husband, Joel, um, at the tail end of the Bush administration, and that was an amazing opportunity for me. I then had the chance to work on a few different uh, presidential campaigns, um, but I never thought I would run for office myself. The first inkling when I 
first thought about running for office was I was volunteering on an election in upstate New York, and um, without getting into the specifics of which election it was, I just started to think, well, I have ideas. I, I'm not the candidate in this election, but I have different solutions and a different way of communicating um, my ideas for the region. And sort of put that all out of the back of my mind, uh, focused on working on campaigns. And after the 2012 election for president, which Republicans lost, I was deeply concerned uh, of the failure of uh, Republican candidates at that time to reach out to young women. If you looked at my demographic, women, women aged 18 to 30, um, President Obama won that demographic overwhelmingly. And I thought it was important to have new voices step up to the plate, uh, have different perspectives to try to communicate why our policies um, are, will benefit young working women, uh, whether it's tax issues, agriculture, national security, economic opportunity. Um, I also was concerned about my uh, district. Young people are leaving upstate New York in droves. Um, New York State, just in the past year, is losing about 100,000 of our population. Most of that's coming from upstate New York. Uh, and I wanted to focus on turning that tide in reverse. How do we attract young people to either come back or stay, start their families and start businesses there? My family, I grew up in a small business family. My parents run a plywood distribution company. My dad has been in that industry since he graduated from high school, worked his way up, and then started his own business. So I really uh, grew up in the environment of parents who were entrepreneurs and who believed in having a strong work ethic, but also believed in giving their kids better opportunities, whether it was investing in education, uh, making sure that we were um, involved in sports and other extracurriculars. I want young people to have those opportunities to Day. Were your parents political? Were they part of the example that was set to help you see yourself potentially in this kind of role? They were not political in the sense that um, they were not involved day to day in campaigns. They were not on any town committees. They were very civically engaged. Um, they voted and uh, they had, uh, you know, they identified as Republican. Um, but they definitely followed the news. In terms of the day-to-day -day campaigning, I don't think they followed it that closely. What they were more focused on, and I remember this from our you know, dinner conversations and just growing up, uh, they were focused on exposing their kids to what was happening in the news, making sure that we paid attention, making sure that we always uh, knew who was running for president and what was being discussed, sort of the top-level politics. But I am not from a political family in the traditional sense. I, I would say I'm from a very civically-minded family. What do you think the best preparation has been for you in running? Which jobs have prepared you best for this role? I actually go back even before my professional um, opportunities. I go back to going to an all-girls school. I uh, went through to an all-girls day school, Albany Academy for Girls. Uh, it's a small uh, independent school. It's uh, the classes from pre-K through 12th grade are in the same building. And looking back, although I didn't know it at the time, being able to look up to older students who were leaders, whether it was captains of the sports team, head of student council, uh, you know, the editor of the newspaper, every leader that we looked up to were women, just because it was an all-girls school. I think that experience helped me have the confidence and uh, me to have the leadership 
um, qualifications or the leadership experience uh, at a very young age. So I knew nothing other than women leaders as a young person. I also think shifting to my professional life, working at the White House was extremely um, helpful in terms of understanding how complex policy issues, how you need to bring in different perspectives. So one of the roles of the Chief of Staff's office, particularly the policy development piece, is making sure that the various departments are involved in those conversations, that you go through a rigorous policy process and you're presented with choices. You presented the president with choices as part of policy time. Um, we try, I try to run a very rigorous uh, legislative office in terms of getting feedback from my constituents, making sure that we're hearing differing voices and differing perspectives, and how do we translate that into solutions for our district. Um, it also just gave me exposure in terms of um, how Washington works and how to be an effective member of Congress. Uh, additionally, seeing my parents start their business, which they did when I was seven, so I definitely have memories of the challenges that they went through where they risked literally every dollar they had to start a business and it was really sink or swim. Uh, I'm one of two kids, I'm the oldest, I have a younger brother who's about five years younger than me and when you grow up in that type of environment that's instilled in you forever. Um, so that experience also helped shape uh, and prepared me to run for office because starting a business is risky just like running for office is risky. So you mentioned mentorship uh, and this notion of going to an all-girls school and the impact that that had on the way that you that you have approached this. One of your goals, you've said, is getting more women elected to Congress, more women from the Republican Party elected to Congress. Talk to me a little bit about what your efforts are in that regard. And why is it important to have more women, frankly? So first, I wanted the job of recruitment chair for the National Republican Congressional Committee because I was not recruited to run for office. In fact, when I first started thinking about running and got in contact with um, the NRCC, again, the national apparatus that helps congressional campaigns, um, they did not want me to run for office. Uh, they wanted to recruit other candidates who had either run previously and lost, I might add, um, or they just wanted someone that was more proven. And I found that uh, despite the fact that I was willing to outwork all of my opponents and that I had the inner drive to run, they just initially weren't that interested. Something is wrong with the recruitment process if we're not encouraging new voices and new types of candidates to step up. So I specifically asked for this opportunity and uh, presented a plan um, to my colleagues about how we can do better in terms of recruiting diverse candidates. So by diverse, I mean women candidates, veteran candidates, African-American candidates, Hispanic candidates, candidates who have never served in public office before but have a different perspective than a typical member of Congress. What I've found when it comes to recruiting women, um, you need to proactively ask. Um, we also, what I've tried to do is set up um, an informal mentorship program 
So if a woman has young children and is, has questions about how you balance going back and forth from your home district to Washington, making sure that they're in contact with current elected women, whether it's Kathy McMorris Rogers, who is uh, in our Republican leadership but has three young children, or someone like Martha Roby from Alabama, who when she was first elected, her youngest uh, child was I think a couple weeks or a couple months old and really worked through those challenges. Um, I also find that a lot of women will say, well, I'm not ready. Maybe someday I will run. I don't feel ready. And I try to explain to them, I was certainly not ready when I first ran for Congress. Uh, there were so many things I had to learn throughout that first campaign uh, that I learned by doing, and it's okay to grow into a strong candidate. You need to start from somewhere, and um, typically I find when I'm reaching out to male candidates, they're ready to go, they have all the qualifications in their mind. Um, and I think that's a strength of women who are constantly looking to grow and constantly looking to improve and really uh, search within about why they're running, and there's typically some type of policy or advocacy issue they're focused on. Mm -hmm. Once you finally get a woman across the finish line to at least volunteer to run, you've, you've asked her, you know, typically, rather than she raising her hand, you mentioned you have to ask her to run, sometimes more than once, I'm told. Um, is it different when women run? Is it harder for women to run than for men? It is different when women run. I think the media covers women candidates very differently. I think uh, in my own experience, women candidates, um, there's reporting on their attire. Uh, in my case, it was almost a, a double uh, atypical candidacy in the sense that I was young and a woman. Uh, I'll never forget in that first election cycle, pretty much every article had my name and it would say comma 29 no other candidate, they wouldn't mention the age of any other candidate in the race because it was so outside of their, you know, the, the normal the normal campaign coverage. Uh, they weren't used to covering young candidates. I think that is unique in terms of how they treated me as a young woman candidate. Uh, and I also, I, I think whether you see uh, the challenges that Hillary Clinton faced or you see some of the challenges that people like Nikki Haley uh, have gone through in terms of the accusations, it is very clear to me that the media covers women, elected officials and candidates differently than they do uh, men. And attire. I know you've talked a lot about the fixation on your legwear. Your, on your hosiery, yes, <laughs> of all things to focus on, right? That this became something that was always mentioned in articles that were written about you that yes. first year. So this was really interesting. Again, I was 29 years old uh, when I first announced my candidacy, and I turned 30 right after my primary, but um, pattern tights, very tasteful pattern tights, uh, which were normal and are still somewhat in fashion, uh, I would wear them and people would have critiques saying, well, you can't wear those, those, you know, they would focus on the fact that I was wearing pattern tights. And I, I simply realized this is not, this is not what average voters care about. And I'm going to continue talking about the issues like the economy and national security and veterans care and not my pattern tights and let the media talk about pattern tights, let other people talk about that. Um, but they wouldn't do, be doing that if it were a male candidate. What's the hardest part of the job? Uh, the hardest part of the job, and I think this has changed for me over time, um, 
the hardest part is also one of the best parts initially in that you get exposed to so many policy issues on a day-to-day basis. So any given day, um, I could be meeting with a group of farmers, veterans, um, focused on House Intelligence Committee work, uh, discussing health care issues, and that's a challenge for someone who likes to go in-depth on policy issues. You really have to be well-versed on a wide variety of policy issues and be able to shift pretty quickly over the course of the day. Um, as I've grown into this job and really gotten a handle of the various policy issues uh, important to my district, and that's I've gotten that, I think, by listening and effectively um, meeting with so many stakeholders throughout the district. Now one of the biggest challenges I find is the disconnect between what's covered in the media versus what voters are talking about at home. Mm -hmm. And reflecting on the 2016 presidential election, I think that was one of my conclusions is the media often focuses on issues that voters don't think are relevant and voters feel there's a disconnect in what they're reading, uh, whether it's on Twitter or the day-to-day national media. People are focused on very different things, and I find um, as a member of Congress, sometimes that coverage can be distracting from the issues that are important to constituents that I represent. So you spend a lot of time at home in your district, traveling around that district, which is a relatively large district. Mm -hmm. Um, From the standpoint of your constituency, what are the biggest challenges facing the country? What are they most worried about? In my district, um, jobs in the economy is consistently the number one priority of voters and constituents in my district. Uh, People are seeing a loss of manufacturing jobs over time. So this is historically, I would say, over the past 15 to 20 years. Uh, They're seeing a workforce, a significant workforce challenge in terms of there are jobs available, but finding the right people with the right skill sets to fill those jobs. Uh, is an important um, is an important topic that I hear virtually at every small business tour. Um, <clears throat> I focus on solutions, so we, I've been very engaged in career and technical education, making sure that those programs are supported, uh, whether it's through BOCES programs in at the high school level or community college programs or certification programs geared towards employers in our region. In terms of the country as a whole, another issue that I think that I'm deeply concerned about, and I hear this from constituents, I have a number of colleges and universities that I represent. And uh, we've been seeing some of the controversies at the national level, not having respect and not having the ability to discuss opposing viewpoints. Uh, so having this homogenization of, uh, of, of philosophies or principles on college campuses. I think we need to cultivate discourse and disagreements are a good thing to have. You're supposed to discuss uh, and and critique and learn other people's perspectives and I just get worried about that in my district and the microcosm where I see that on college campuses, not as much as other places nationally, but I think that is a generational challenge we're going to face. Absolutely. And you've shown yourself very adept at working across the aisle, reaching out to people who have different points of view, creating bipartisan support for legislation. Many of your legislative accomplishments that I mentioned before, you've had bipartisan support. How, how do you go about bridging that gap that you mentioned? I completely agree with you. It's so important to have those conversations and to reach out to people who have different points of view. But what's your advice to people for, for going, how do you go about having that conversation? How do you reach out? So I think you have to be willing to listen and you have to be willing to be respectful. 
Um, I, uh, for example, during the healthcare discussion last year, which was very politicized, I had the opportunity to meet with 40 different advocacy groups that uh, were not, they're not traditional Republicans, they disagreed with the repeal and the replacement of the Affordable Care Act, but actually sitting down with them and telling them my perspectives about how we can fix this law, how I'm concerned about the prices that are continuing to increase, my experience on the Affordable Care Act, and the poor coverage and high costs that I experienced, which was a pledge I made to voters when I first ran, having that type of engagement is very helpful, I think, both for those advocacy groups and for me as a policymaker. As an elected official, it is a choice if you decide to be bipartisan. This is a choice I have made. Um, so I try to, every bill that I introduce, we try to get a Democratic co-sponsor on and try to cultivate those types of conversations with other policymakers and other offices. The Luker Center uh, does a study of uh, bipartisanship in Congress based upon your voting record as well as your co-sponsorships. And I've been very proud that since I've been in office, I'm in the top 10% of both, both the House and Senate when it comes to bipartisanship. Uh, and that's, that's something that generationally, you see millennials are less likely to identify with the traditional parties, Republican and Democrat. So I'm hopeful that the next generation of policy leaders are able to solve these very serious national issues by bridging the divide. You're never going to get everything you want in, uh, you know, in bills that come across the floor, but you can be a voice of reason and be willing to compromise. How does your commitment to bipartisanship play in your district? We get a lot of support for bipartisanship. What I'm very proud, my district traditionally is a, a really swing district. Uh, my predecessor in this job uh, won by one or two points each election cycle. My first election, I won by 20 points. But more importantly, my first re-election, we won by over 35 percentage points. That means that it certainly wasn't just Republicans who I'm very appreciative of their support, but it was also independents, it was also Democrats um, who voted in support of me. I think people, especially in my district, they split their ballot based upon who they think will be the best advocate for the region, and I was proud to earn such a, a wide margin victory uh, across party lines. What have you been proudest of so far? I mean, it's been a fairly short period of time. You've been here three years, mm -hmm. right? Because you're in the middle of your second term. So what's your proudest accomplishment so far? My proudest accomplishment uh, has to do with Fort Drum. Um, that is the biggest employer in my district, and Fort Drum, for the listeners, uh, it is an Army installation, so an Army base, and it is home to the 10th Mountain Division, which is really a historically famed division in the U.S. Army, but it's also the most deployed unit since 9-11 to Iraq and Afghanistan. And this was actually a test in my first couple of months uh, as a freshman member of Congress in my first year. Fort Drum was at risk of losing um, the vast majority of their soldiers in terms of some of the cuts stemming from sequestration, which was across the board defense cuts uh, in terms of the Pentagon budget. And I was very proud to lead the effort as a freshman member of Congress get every single New York member of the delegation, all Democrats, all Republicans, to sign on a letter of support to the Secretary, Secretary of Defense reiterating how important Fort Drum was. Uh, I also got the two U.S. Senators engaged and was able to 
uh, save Fort Drum more than any other army post across the country in terms of uh, its future. They didn't face those cuts. That's a significant victory for my district, but also for national security and army readiness and future training potential. To be able to point to a result like that uh, is something that I was, I am very proud of, and that was in my first six months uh, of, of stepping into uh, and growing into this job. That's terrific. That's really fantastic. So you've got big goals, I'm sure, and a lot of opportunity ahead of you. How do you know when you've been here long enough? Right? You're running for re-election every two years. How do you know when you're, when you're done, when it's time to move on? I think that's a very interesting and difficult question. Um, I am a believer that there should be more churn in uh, Congress. I do think there is something to be said about experience and wisdom, so I respect deeply my colleagues who have been here for a long time. I think they have institutional knowledge uh, and have worked with various administrations, and that is helpful as we engage in these issues. But in terms of my perspective, I think this is a job that I support term limits. I took a term limit pledge. I intend to keep it. Um, I have to go out there every two years and earn the support of, of voters that I represent. And we're feeling really great headed into this election. But I think 10 to 15 years is about the time that uh, you may need freshness in Congress. And my term limit pledge was 10 years, so five terms. Do you think term limits have an impact on increasing the number of women, sort of the, the diversity overall, but the number of women potentially it, in other settings, whether you're talking about on corporate boards or in other, you know, in other sectors, if you will, outside of Congress, it can make a real difference because it creates opportunities for people that wouldn't otherwise have them. Yes, I think it provides increased opportunities for women. Um, women, I'm trying to get more women candidates to run in open seats um, that are strong Republican seats. So we, we have tremendous women who are in swing districts uh, who appeal to independent and soft Democrats uh, and are able to hold those seats like Martha McSally in Arizona, for example. But we also need women in all sorts of uh, districts, whether they are strong Republican districts, swing districts, or Democratic districts. I do think term limits helps uh, let this new generation of candidates step up. And then internally, in terms of how Congress functions, if you look at committee chairmanships, Republicans actually have term limits, and it has allowed young leaders like Paul Ryan to rise through the ranks much more quickly than uh, across the aisle. The age of Democratic leadership is much older than the average age of Republican leadership. I'm in my second term and am a subcommittee chair on the House Armed Services Committee. That's that would never happen on the other side of the aisle because of the term because they don't have term limits there. So I'd be remiss in not asking you about this. You mentioned Speaker Ryan, and you've mentioned that he was an early mentor for you. Talk about that. What 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 is mentorship meant meant to you, and what's the best advice he gave has given you? I got to know Paul when he was running as the vice presidential nominee uh, on the Romney Ryan ticket. And um, I was hired to coordinate and oversee his debate preparation. So I traveled full time uh, with Paul and his team and his family from the convention to the vice presidential debate. And um, it was inspiring to me. And I think it was one of the reasons that I felt the courage to run for office uh, after the campaign was someone so young as, as Paul was when he first ran for Congress. He was in his late 20s 
has been able to shape the national discourse in a substantive way on issues related to our fiscal crisis, our debt, and why we need to solve these issues for the next generation. That really spoke to me, and I was so proud uh, to be able to get to know him, to see how uh, focused he was in terms of preparing for the debate, but also on the campaign trail, talking about substantive issues that that matter and that are going to um, going to have an impact on the future economic trajectory of our country. Um, his best advice to me after the election was over, obviously there was lots of soul searching happening with everybody. Um, and I went to him, I think early in the spring of 2013, and I talked to him about my interest in running for Congress. And at this point, not a lot of people were being supportive. Uh, but Paul said, you absolutely should do it. Um, my best advice, this was his best advice telling me, um, you have two ears and one mouth. Use them in that ratio. Listen <laughs> as a candidate. It's important. Um, many candidates just spend time talking and not taking the time to listen to people that they're trying to earn their support and people they want to represent. And that has served me well, uh, not just as a candidate, but as a member of Congress. Great advice for life whether yes. you're running for, yes. for office or not, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, Washington can be a very intoxicating place, right? All of this can go to your head. You are incredibly grounded, incredibly authentic. How do you maintain that? I think I, I my parents and my brother keep me grounded, believe me. <laughs> um, I have a very strong uh, family unit in terms of supporting me through the ups and the downs and uh, you know, when when it's holiday cooking time, I'm just as responsible for chores uh, after I was elected as before I was elected. So I think it was it stems back to how I was raised. Um, I also have a very supportive husband who um, I uh, dated before I even thought about running for Congress, and he has always encouraged me um, and has been through the ups and downs of the campaign. I also think making sure that you maintain your close group of friends who you know, are your friends on the good days and the bad days. Having that network of support is very important, not just in elected office, but in any type of uh, professional life where it's high profile and high pressure. So one of the things that inevitably will come up in these conversations is this notion of um, sort of fear, fear of failure, imposter syndrome, if you want to use the, the, the technical term for it sort of looking around and saying, oh my gosh, how did I get here? Am I really ready for this? You don't seem to suffer from this, but I know you're a very normal person, so I suspect that you do, right? <laughs> and how do you deal with that? What's your advice for other people, um, especially women who are aspiring to hold a job like this, like, like you do? Folks who are looking to, to uh, walk in your shoes one day, what advice do you have for them for this notion of sort of self-doubt and fear and things that we as women sometimes do to ourselves? Oh, I have had imposter syndrome before, especially in my first year in Congress. This is an overwhelming job. And I think um, despite the fact that I had experience in uh, policymaking in Washington, and I'm proud of that experience, I still had many moments of self-doubt. And I, I think it's important to work through that and uh, remember that 
you went out there and earned this election and people don't expect you to be perfect but they want you to work hard to put forth ideas and to represent your district with integrity uh, but it you I learned to work through it over time I, I look back to my first campaign and there was a moment when I thought I uh, I thought it was going to ruin my campaign I was giving a speech and it was the first time that my dad was in the audience because I really I really wanted to run um, uh, my parents just didn't come to a lot of political events early on because they didn't want to make me nervous and it was at a <laughs> local uh, county GOP golf tournament and my dad was in the audience and as part of my stump speech at the time I would talk about growing up what it's like to be raised in a small business family and I just became so emotional because I'm looking at my dad who's watching me and I started crying and this was right before my primary there's like a hundred people in front of me and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose this primary election because voters are seeing a moment of weakness where I'm crying, not because I'm sad, but crying because I'm so proud of my dad watching me. I'm, still, I'm sort of getting choked up talking about it. But what I realized, Laura, was lots of voters after that speech were like, oh my gosh, it was, that was so emotional and so personal and this is why we're being so supportive of you. That was an eye-opener for me when I thought it was a very weak moment. It actually was a moment of, of strength in the sense that you know, I, I'm proud of why I'm running, I'm proud of my family, I'm proud of my background. That's awesome, that's so awesome. You're obviously very close to your family. You've got an amazing husband. How do you, how do you wind down? What, what, what are your hobbies? What do you do for fun? I like to cook. Um, I you can follow me on Instagram, Elise Stepanek. I uh, my I grew up. My mom and my dad both are good cooks. More my mom. Uh, my dad is good at grilling, <laughs> but I. Um, I find that that is a, a good distraction and it's something that I like to do. I also am a big reader. Uh, I try to read every night, um, fiction, nonfiction, just something, uh, usually it's unrelated to my day-to-day -day work, but it's something that I've been passionate about since I was a kid. Uh, I loved English class growing up. I've always read going back to you know, classics like The Secret Garden when I was a little girl or Little Women. Um, uh, and I, I actually post most of my books on Instagram, and there's a group of young women that it's kind of like an Instagram book club that follow and will talk to me as I'm at home in the district about, oh, I read that book too after you posted it. So that's very fun too, is uh, appealing to the non-political um, parts of, of just people's day-to-day -day lives. Uh, but I read, I cook, um, I do like getting outside. I don't have as much time to ski as I want, but I grew up skiing with my dad. There's a ton of ski mountains in the district I represent, um, and that's something that I always like to do during the winter. So we ask each of our guests to leave us with one life hack or piece of advice. You've shared the great advice that you got from Speaker Ryan. Is there any other advice that you, something that you particularly rely on or something that you always tell other people that's kind of a, you know, that, that go-to life hack, if you will? I think the, the life hack that I um, remember most vividly is my dad used to tell me, um, don't tell me how smart you are, tell me how hard you work. And the reason why over time I've realized that that's such strong advice is the harder you work, the smarter you get. Um, but the, the overall point was nothing replaces work ethic and just, just hard work. And uh, whether you're starting a business, as is my parents' case, or whether you're running a campaign as an underdog, um, I had to outwork my opponents in a tough primary and tough general election. And that uh, nothing replaces hard work. I mean, that, that's my life hack. 
That's fantastic. Elise, thank you so much. There's no mystery as to why we were so anxious to get you on She Said, She Said. This has been amazing, and I really appreciate it. Thanks, Laura. I'm, I'm so excited to do this, and I can't wait to see how this grows. Thank you. Thank you very much. You all can learn more about Elise by visiting our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. For now, thanks for listening. 